If you want to be a premier cop, then you need to learn from the premier police training company in the land. Of course, I'm talking about Street Cop Training. They've got dozens of instructors out in the field right now, sharing their expertise in narcotics, interdiction, report writing, first aid, mental health, case law, and just quality police work. And those aren't even all the topics. There's literally something for everybody. I've attended several classes myself, and I can tell you that these folks cannot miss. Dennis Benino, the owner, is doing massive things for the world of law enforcement at a time when everyone else seems to be running away from it. Street Cop Training is literally the best in the business. Check out their private Instagram and join their law enforcement-only Facebook group to get free trainings, and then check out upcoming in-person and on-demand trainings at streetcop.com. You will not be disappointed. This episode of the 10A Podcast is sponsored by TOC Public Relations, the only PR, marketing, and strategic communication firm that specializes in working with public safety agencies, associations, and businesses. TOCPR is also the parent company of Law Enforcement Social, which provides social media, PIO, and content creation training for all public safety. Be sure to check them out at TOCPublicRelations.com and LawEnforcement.Social. The views and opinions expressed on the 10-8 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. They do not necessarily reflect an official policy or position. The 10-8 podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. This week on the 10-8 podcast, Stand with Darby with Keelan Darby. He said, uh, hey, if you hear anything, just know that I'm okay. I knew that he was involved in a shooting. They came to the conclusion that Ben was within policy. The DA is seeking a murder indictment against you. If you fire him, we won't press charges. He has an immunity hearing. She denied it. No immunity. Ben Darby is not a murderer. It makes the illusion that he has no support. William Darby, we find you guilty and you're convicted of murder. I dropped. He said, it's going to be okay. We're going to figure this out. Just hold on. The state gets up there and they say, we suggest a 25-year minimum. I am begging her, please give my husband leniency. She already had her mind made up. She says, okay, I order you to 25 years in prison. He says, you know, I'll see you soon. And I haven't seen him since. He didn't do anything wrong. Why is my husband in prison? Ben was a political football. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the 108 Podcast. This is episode 229. What's going on? I'm your host, 108. And today's episode is very special. It is brought to you by our good friends at the Resiliency Project and by brought to you, not that we are sponsors, but we're partners in this endeavor. Uh, you may have remembered a few months ago, we brought on Christina Dagas and we talked about her husband, Matthew Dagas, and his fight for freedom and his fight now for his career. Well, just to put a little postscript on that story, uh, Matthew was actually found not guilty in his criminal case and he is now working on getting reinstated as a law enforcement officer out in California. I'm trying to clear his name. And uh, now, 
we are brought a new story from Huntsville, Alabama, where we talked to Sergeant Keelan Darby about her husband, William Ben Darby, a police officer from Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, what you're about to hear in a few moments is terrible. It's a police officer doing his job, and uh, and he's now in prison for it. You know, I don't, I'm not here to tell you what I think, and I'm not here to tell you what you should think. I'm merely here to present facts and stories, and hopefully it gets you to think for yourself. That's, I don't, I don't tell people, you know, hey, you should do this. Um, I, I present options and opinions and things like that for you to go, huh, either A, I'm going to look into this more, or B, that, well, that that's, that's the number one thing I want you to do, but I like to think that I provide a uh, thorough enough analysis of certain things and you can go, oh yeah, no, this is, this is fucked up. And, um, that's what you're going to find out today. It's, it's very, very crazy. And as someone in law enforcement, who's been in law enforcement, uh, it, it, it's a microcosm story. And I say that in the interview, uh, if this stands right, the entire police life and really the entire life of our society is at risk. If an officer responding to a call for service, uh, being unfortunately the person behind the trigger of a unfortunate use of force is criminally liable, even though he was found to have not broken any policy within his department. That's a problem. That's a problem. Uh, I was just watching a hip hop documentary. I'm a, I've said this in the past. I'm a big fan of hip hop documentaries. I enjoy the music and, uh, you know, to learn about the culture is very interesting to me. And I just got to an episode. It's called Hip Hop Evolution. It's on Netflix. And I just got to an episode where they were talking about the Rodney King riots of the of the early 90s. And without, you know, digging up prehistoric history, uh, I, I just I just want to say that, like, I understand the frustration in that case. You know, the, the evidence was not good. Maybe it was slanted too much in the way of the law enforcement officers. Honestly, I don't know. I, I don't know the specifics of that case. It was literally right around when I was born, so it wasn't my issue. That being said, we, we now have a lot more information in front of us when we see these officer-involved um, use of force cases. You know, we have a lot more information. The public has a lot more understanding, or they should have a lot more understanding uh, about police work, you know? And... When you have a case like Matt Degas or Ben Darby, you start going, okay, like, I don't get it, right? Because it, it really minimizes the true victims of police brutality or police overreach or whatever. And I'm not here to sit and tell you that those things don't happen. They absolutely do. There are bad cops, just like there are bad doctors, bad nurses, bad teachers. Like, every career field has that. And I'm not here to say that there aren't. I'm saying that. By saying that this incident is an I, I, an example of um, police misconduct, really um, marginalizes the true victims. There is no true victim in this case, except for Ben Darby. So we're going to get into that, but I, I actually wanted to go into, uh, tell you a little bit about the law. And here's why. What you're going to find out is that the jury for this case was not allowed to know certain specific case laws that are very important and binding in police work. So I want to go through these things because the jury was not privy to this information. If you're a law enforcement officer, you already know this stuff, but the jury who is a quote unquote jury of your peers. But if you're a police officer, you know 
that police officers don't sit jury. They just don't. That being said, you know, we say in the in the episode that it's it's kind of silly to get lay people into a police trial when they don't understand police tactics and it's a disservice to all those involved. So what I'm going to go through is break down a couple cases, a couple uh, pieces of information you need to know, and then we're going to go right into Keelan Darby. So let's take a look at it first. All right, so the first issue at hand today, uh, the, the name of the game is the case of murder. Not not Snoop Dogg, murder was the case, the case that they gave me. Uh, I want to look at the Alabama Code, uh, Criminal Code, Title 13A. It's actually going to be 13A-6-2, subsection A. It says, and I'm reading this on findlaw.com, so this may not be the exact one. Uh, It may be worded a little differently, but I think this is it. So it says, uh, A, a person commits the crime of murder if he or she does any of the following. Subsection 1, with intent to cause the death of another person, he or she causes the death of another person of that person or another person. Subsection 2. Under circumstances manifesting extreme indifference to human life, he or she recklessly engages in conduct which creates a grave risk of death to a person other than himself or herself and thereby causes the death of another person. Subsection 3. He or she commits or attempts to commit arson in the first degree, burglary in the first or second degree, escape in the... Okay, so those that doesn't apply. Subsection 4. He or she commits the crime of arson. Again, that doesn't... That doesn't apply. Um, go back one. We have a person does not commit murder under subdivisions A1 or A2 if the subject he or she ha- was moved to act by a sudden heat of passion caused by the provocation recognized by law. And before there has had been a reasonable time for the passion to cool and for reason to assert itself. The burden of injecting the issue of killing under legal provocation is on the defendant, but this does not shift the burden of proof. The subsection does not apply to a prosecution for or preclude a conviction of manslaughter or another crime. Interesting. Sub-subsection 3, murder is a Class A felony, provided that the punishment for for murder or any offense committed under aggravated circumstances by a person 18 years of age or older, uh, as provided by Article 2, Chapter 5 in this title, is death or life imprisonment without parole, which punishment... Okay, that's just talking about punishment. Okay, so we understand what the law says, right? It's the intentional taking of another life. It also says, you know, or if you're acting recklessly in danger. Now, it does say that it is not committed... If it's sudden heat of passion, basically self-defense, right? Um, That subsection does not come into play here. This was not an act of immediate self-defense, okay? So if you've never seen the body cam video of Ben Darby, go check it out. It's not. It's a very... A uh, peculiar situation is not it's not uncommon, but it's peculiar in that it's an armed standoff with a man with a gun to his head. And then you have three police officers with their guns uh, more or less pointed or in the area of the subject, which we'll go into with Keelan in a minute. Uh, but Ben Darby did. OK. And um, so that being said, let's before we go into objective reasonableness, which is really what I want to hunker down on. Um, let's go ahead and look at. Alabama Code 13A-6-3 sub A sub 1, manslaughter. Reckless manslaughter. The defendant is charged with manslaughter. A person commits the crime of manslaughter if he slash she recklessly causes the death of another person to convict. The state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that each of the following elements. um, A, a person, insert name of the deceased, is dead. 
Okay. Two, the defendant caused the death of said person by describe the act such as shooting him or her. And, and and ors are big in law. If you've never read laws before, and and ors big. Uh, in causing the death of said person, the defendant acted recklessly. Recklessly. Okay. Um, so, a person, when uh, referring... Okay, that's nothing. person acts recklessly in regards to his conduct if... A... The actor is aware that there is a substantial or unjustifiable risk that death will occur. Two, the risk of death is so great that the actor's failure to recognize this risk is gross de- is a gross deviation from the standard of behavior to which a reasonable person, reasonable person, person uh, would hold him or herself in the same situation. And three, the actor consciously disregards this substantial and unjustifiable risk. Interesting. So. I want to keep you, put you all that in your memory banks because we're going to need it in just a minute. So now let's talk Graham versus Connor and let's talk objective reasonableness. All right. So the important thing to know is that Graham versus Connor is the leading case on use of force. And it's uh, from 1989. The court held that all claims that law enforcement officers have used excessive force, deadly or not, in the course of an arrest, investigatory stop, or other seizure of a free citizen should be analyzed under the Fourth Amendment and its objective reasonableness standard. The court stated that a seizure occurs when a law enforcement officer terminates a free citizen's movement by means of intentionally applied. An officer may seize a person in many ways. Traffic stops, investigative detentions, and arrests are all seizures under the Fourth Amendment. To seize someone, an officer may yell, stop. The officer may use handcuffs, a baton, or firearm to make the suspect stop. Every seizure must be objectively reasonable, meaning reasonable at its inception, in the manner it was affected, and in its duration. All right, so what is this objective test? The court stated that the reasonableness of a particular use of force must be judged from a perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene rather than that of a 2020 vision of hindsight. The objective test requires the court to envision a reasonable officer and ask this question. Based on the totality of the facts and circumstances, could such an officer believe that the force was reasonable. Since the objective test judges the officer through the lens of a reasonable officer, the subjective beliefs of an actual officer, whether they are good or bad, are not relevant. Facts make force reasonable. The objective reasonable test requires officers to rely on their senses or what they saw, heard, smelled, tasted, or touched, and then articulate the factual basis for the seizure. Was the seizure reasonable, meaning reasonable to its inception in the degree of force used or in its duration? Now, we can go all through uh, Supreme Court case law, constitutional case law, things like that, uh, but that's not the point of today's episode. I just want you guys to understand what reasonable, uh, objective reasonableness is uh, because it plays in t- such a huge factor in all uses of force, all seizures, uh, and, and when you think seizure, I'm sure you're thinking of like drug seizure, but no, literally stopping a person, having any kind of interaction with a person where they are not free to go is a seizure, and a use of force is just another type of seizure on a person. All that I just read came from Fletzy, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, and you guys can find it online. But the point is, and and we're going to go right into Keelan, but this was a a very important part that I needed to talk about. The important part of all this, right, is that you need to view it 
at what the officer knew at the time, what a re and how a reasonable officer, given those same facts and circumstances, would have acted. Okay, you can't look at it six years later or two years later or three months later or the next day and go, oh, well, you know, we should have done that. Everyone can do that. Everyone can Monday morning quarterback. That's not that's not what the law says. And like I said, this is bedrock case law for how the police do their job. And I guarantee you, because I was in doing the research for this section, uh, I said where basically they said, oh, some of them were going, oh, no, Graham v. Connor isn't enough. Objective reasonableness isn't enough to guarantee use of force. And I guarantee you, if they either overturn Graham versus Connor or they come up with some stipulation to it, uh, no one's going to want to be the cops. No one's going to want to be the cops. It's hard enough to be the cops now. Uh, you're going to get rid of all of them. So all that being said, you know, we, we need to take that into account. So let's go ahead. Let's listen to Keelan Darby. Uh, she's going to talk for, for a while. We're going to discuss the case and the events that happened before, during, and after. And I want you guys to take the murder charge, the murder law I read, the manslaughter law that I read, and then objective reasonableness and kind of put that all together as we talk about it. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is my conversation with Miss Sergeant Keelan Darby. My eyes are open wide By the way I made it through the day I watched the world outside By the way I'm leaving out today I just saw Haley's comet She Said why you We are back and joining me, as I said in the introduction, we have Sergeant Keelan Darby from Alabama. And, you know, we talk about these big stories. Uh, it seems like every time we kind of get intertwined with the Resiliency Project, we get these big stories. And I think it's so important. All I talk about is officers taking care of themselves. And sometimes uh, things kind of get in our way. Uh, and this is the story that you're about to hear, ladies and gentlemen, is... I don't even know. It, it kind of puts me beside myself. And this is a, a true story. This is this is uh, Miss Darby's real life. This has been her experience over the past several years. And it is up to people like her, Nick, myself, and everybody listening to get this story out there and seek justice for her and her husband. But before we get into that, I want to say welcome and thank you for joining me, Keelan Darby. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So for uh, everybody that doesn't know, uh, Keelan is a sergeant in a police department in Alabama, as I said, and her husband, well, I, I won't do all the talking. I'll let you kind of do that part. What? Is, um, go ahead and introduce yourself first and foremost, and then um, tell us about your husband. Okay. So like I, like I said, I'm Keelan Darby. Um, I am in law enforcement as a sergeant in a neighboring agency. My husband is William Ben Darby. A lot of people get that confused, so I'll clarify that now. Uh, he goes by Ben, so Ben Darby. 
Um, he was the formal Huntsville police officer. Uh, we both started in law enforcement in 2016. We were uh, we went through the academies during the same time. We didn't go through the same academy, but we went through the academies during the same time. Went through FTO, uh, got cut loose, and we were recently married and loving the job. So we were we were eating it with a spoon. In 2018, uh, April 3rd, 2018, uh, we were both at our separate departments working. And I was on the way to a call and Ben had called me on the phone and I answered it. And he said, uh, Hey, if you hear anything, just know that I'm okay. And I was like, well, okay. Like, what do you mean? He's like, can't go into detail. Just know that I'm okay. And I said, Oh, did you wreck your car again? Uh, laughing because as a rookie, he was involved in a minor accident, had to go and get, um, tested, you know, per, mm-hmm, per mm-hmm. protocol. And he said, no, I do have to go to the hospital, but I'm okay. Just know that I'm fine. He said, I got to go. I said, okay, love you. Bye. You know, see you tonight. Um, I answered my call and as I'm, I'm still on route in route to my call. And then it hit me. He got, he was involved in a shooting because there's no mm-hmm. other reason that you go to the hospital. He said he was okay. Physically, he didn't wreck his vehicle. Um, so I answered my call. I called my supervisor. I said, Hey, I have a family emergency. I need to get off. And it was about the end of shift. No big deal. He let me go home and I waited, I waited for Ben to get home. Um, he came home late and walked in the door and was visibly, um, something was wrong. You know, you can just tell when your spouse is dealing with something. And I said, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm okay. And I don't remember exactly how deep we got into it that night about what happened, but I knew that he was involved in a shooting. So he was off for three days uh, per standard protocol. And um, he went in and did his interviews with CID and IA. And a couple weeks later, I think two or three weeks later, he had to go through an incident review board. So that's a board of members comprised of Huntsville Police Department personnel and the district attorney's office. And they review the incident to make sure that policy and procedure were followed, no no laws were broken, you know, that everything, to see if there was any issues. After hearing Ben's story of it, the other two officers' stories, uh, and everyone involved, they came to the conclusion that Ben was within policy, that um, he was justified in what he did, and he was cleared of any, any wrongdoing within the department, but they also found that the other two officers, Officer Pegues and Officer Beckles, uh, did not follow police officer safety training and protocol in dealing with uh, the incident. So the incident, a guy had called 911 and said, uh, I'm fixing to blow my brains out. The front door is open. So any police officer knows uh, it's probably an ambush. You know, something something bad is about to happen. So um, those two officers, they go in route, and while they're in route, uh, the male officer says, are there any other units in route with us? And dispatch said no. And when you work with your coworkers, you can hear, um, based off of the radio traffic, if they're okay, if you can hear when something's wrong. Right. If there's like a heightened sense of nervousness or something, you you can tell. Right. And Ben had picked up on that in Officer Beckel's voice, and he was en route to the precinct to do some uh, paperwork from a previous call. So he he put himself en route to the call with them. Um, officers nationwide, the state of Alabama also included, 
you know, when you're, if you have a guy with a gun inside of a house or a building, you surround and call out. You don't just go in there mm-hmm. because there's so many. Unknowns. Was he the only person in the house? So he was not. Um, okay. But Ben, that wasn't for, that wasn't relayed to Ben. Um, okay. And the officers initially, the officers only knew it was him. Okay. Um, that comes out. They they find the other two officers find out later that there was a his fiance was in the house. Okay. So Ben makes his way to the call, does the smart thing, you know, park three houses down. Um, and him, he's thinking it's going to be, they're going to set up a perimeter based off of training and experience. Um, he's answered, he had answered a call earlier in his career where same, same type of call and they had set up a perimeter and called the guy out and, and did all that. So he was going based off of that training experience. He grabbed his shotgun. He had uh, loaded it with a slug thinking he was going to be taking a perimeter shot if, if he had to, you know, preparing himself in that way. And he gets there and he doesn't see his coworkers, his fellow officers. He doesn't see them. So as he's, he's running up to the house and he sees the female officer in the house with her gun at Sewell, Sewell position, a uh, low ready pointed at the ground, talking with her other hand to a man with a gun to his head. No cover, no concealment. I think there was maybe a couch in between them, but that's not going to protect her from anything. Sure. The other officer was standing in the doorway, so he had part of the brick siding of the of the the frame of the doorway to mm-hmm. protect him. Um, his gun was also out at Sewell in the low ready, uh, and the female officer Pegues was just talking with the subject. So Ben gets up there, sees that. Um, and tells Pegues he can uh, shoot you, point your gun at him. He's an armed he's an armed man with a gun. You know you need to point your gun at him. And uh, just to ahead. I don't I don't want to I don't want to cut you off. But mm-hmm. at this point, right in in your in your husband's career, was he a field training officer or anything like that, or was he just the senior officer, or was he? No, um, at this point he had about eighteen months to two years on the job. Okay, okay. okay. And did did he have uh, any prior experience? No. Or like uh, military, anything like that? No, no prior okay. military or law enforcement. Okay. So, and I'll add this really quick. In 2017, he and I both attended the FBI's officer survival school training. It's a three-day class that they put on okay. teaching officer survival, officer safety, how to deal with people with guns and suicidal subjects. And mm-hmm. this was one of the things that was... Um, that we were trained on during sure. that class. And so he had that additional training coming into this call. Okay. So uh, he gets there, he tells her, you know, point your gun at him. He can shoot you. Uh, he's trying, he knows that she's in there with no cover concealment. He, she does, he doesn't know where the guy is other than he's most likely to her right or in front of her. That's where because she's he, addressing. Because she's addressing that direction. Sure. And her, verbal exchange with the man was there was no command present officer presence. She was not in charge of the situation. Uh, she was vapor locking and Ben knew, you know, something's not, this is not a good situation to be in. She's in there with no cover concealment. She, I have to tell her to point her gun at him. And then the other officer is kind of hanging out in the fatal funnel, mm-hmm. you know, not really helping her at all. Um, at some point, the, the female officer asks if there's another person in the house and uh, they learn 
Piggies and Beckles learn that there is, but that's never relayed to Ben. Okay. So okay. Ben Ben doesn't know that there's another person in the house. Okay. He only knows of Mr. Parker. So Right. Which at that point was was that before he your husband got unseen? I believe so. Okay. They so, they knew before at least before he got up to the house, they knew there was another person inside. Okay. So you potentially have could have a hostage barricade or something. Right. Type of- yeah. And that's where I was going, but I'm going to let you uh, finish kind of outlining the incident. Cause I'm already like, my, I'm, I'm picking apart the other officers uh, yeah. tactics. And I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So policing you guys, I mean, we all know when we're, if we're answering a call with someone and if they're the primary officer, you know, they're talking to the person and if they move away, usually that means like, Hey, come in here a little bit closer and help me. Mm-hmm. That's a general, sure. you know, um, or they might look at you or somehow try to get you that they know that they're not getting anywhere. So, you know, come in here and help or, right, sure, you know, whatever. So Pegues, because the narrative that was pushed, that was pushed up there was that Ben pushed past the officers and inserted himself into the situation. Well, he mm-hmm. was on the outside looking in to two fellow officers risking their, with an imminent threat of a risk to their life. Mm-hmm. Um, their guns are pointed at the ground. He's got a gun to his head and all they're doing is talking to him. They're not showing any control of the situation. She at this, she's vapor locking, uh, going downhill with her conversation. And she does step further into the house, which Ben and officer Beckles then joined with her inside the house. So now all three of them are in the house. Ben has his shotgun pointed at the subject the other two officers, eventually, after you see, if you look at all the body body, kit, body camera video, you see them put their guns up. Um, specifically, Officer Pegues points her gun at the guy with one hand, so she doesn't take, you know, that command grip mm-hmm. on it with two hands. She points it, the gun at him with one hand, looks away, and you can see it on the body camera. Her gun moves off of the off of the subject, and she shifts away. From the from the subject and says, I don't think he's going to shoot us or something to that vernacular. I don't know okay. her, her verbiage, but he's not going to shoot us or he's not going to do it. And then goes back and goes back down to Sewell. So she has her gun on him for maybe mm. less than five seconds this whole time. So before Ben had got there or as he's getting there, they told the guy to put the gun down roughly four or five times. Ben gets there, is in the situation. He tells the guy. Hey man, put, drop your gun, put the gun down. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it verbally. And he's still there gun with his head and you know, they're talking and Ben says, I'm not going to tell you again, put the gun down. And the guy said, the, the guy shakes his head and shrugs his shoulders, which moves the gun. Ben sees the gun move and Ben breaks his shot. He does hit the subject. The, the threat is terminated. So, at that point, Ben goes up, he clears a little bit of the rest of the house up to that, um, puts the guy in handcuffs, and the fiance comes out because she mm-hmm. hears the big boom. So she comes down, obviously not a threat. She's in her pajamas. Um, she has nothing in her hands, okay? And the female officer, Pegues, is yelling at her, show me your hands, show me your hands. And she doesn't have a weapon. Mm-hmm. So she perceives this female as a threat to her as life. As more threat than the guy that had the gun to his head. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Which is. <laughs> that's, that's a different story for a different time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, it goes over the radio, shots fired, 10-3, you know, all that stuff. Um, supervisors get there. He goes and does his tests, comes home. So that's the incident. Okay. So there's so much to pick apart from that. Um, now we've all been taught and, and I, I, I appreciate that you are a member of service also. So I can say we, and in, in including you in this conversation, yeah. because it, it, the understanding is, is so important that, so we are all taught, uh, you know, reaction is slower than action, right? Like, right. Action is versus action is faster than reaction. Exactly. And uh-huh. so that, that should be everybody's instant thought. When, when we're talking about this sub- subject and I have welts somewhere on my body from a force on force training where I had that exact situation happen. And when I was a green rookie and I was like, Oh no, I don't want to shoot him. Well, then I got lit up by the guys mm-hmm. and I was taught that day suicidal turns homicidal like that in, in a, a split su- of a second. Right. A suicidal subject is also homicidal Correct. or vice versa. A homicidal Correct. is suicidal. Correct. So any cop should know day one out of the academy that that's gonna that that is a possibility. If you get forced or if you get put in that situation, that could be. Mm-hmm. Now, the officers on scene as your husband's arriving, you're saying that they know or they come to find out that there is another person in there. Right. And you're right. That is at the that is the moment when we're like when anybody else who's in this situation would go, okay, let's get her out. And then lock down the threat, lock down what we got. And I've seen so many times and so many different officer body cameras or body cam videos where we put ourselves in these dangerous situations where we don't need to. Uh, For example, there's a guy, there's a mentally ill person. He's in his bedroom. He has a knife. Let's go in there. Why? Why are we going in these closed quarter situations? Call him out to us, et cetera. Okay. Right. So. And I'm just kind of breaking it down so that way the the non-law enforcement members or listeners can go, okay, no, that makes sense. So it's not an active threat to the point of like an active shooter. Like he's not actively killing somebody. He's not, you know, he's the only person that he's ultimately a threat to is himself and his fiance potentially. So that's why we got to get her out. But point being is there's no reason to rush into that situation, right? Initially, initially. Right, right. But you're- you know, he- we know he has a gun and he's inside his house. That's his castle, his domain. Correct. We now, don't know that. We don't know that layout. So call correct. him out to us. Now, any, any police officer understands that. Then you're, let's put it yourself, ourselves in Ben's shoes. Get on scene. Again, he's expecting to see this perimeter because we're going to call him out. Cause that's, again, we're not in an active shooter scenario and he doesn't know that the fiance is there. But that's going to become a moot point in just like two seconds because he's going to notice no one's there, goes to the front door, and you see two officers with their guns out. Regardless of the fact that they are pointed to the ground, there's two people with their guns out. I'm going to run up there too. So I'm I'm right up with your husband, right? And the the fact that you're saying that they're – and I've seen the video, so I, this is all corroborated. Okay. The fact that their guns are to the ground and this guy – why, he's probably – He's probably 20 feet. Yeah. 20 feet away with it, with a gun, not, not just displayed, but it is up at his head and they're like, and she goes, he's not going to shoot us or he's not going to do it or whatever. So you're right. You know, when you, when you, when you get on scene and you're working any call and 
the, the there's a contact and there's a cover officer, right? And right. but the thing is that the contact officer doesn't have either a the scene under control or b uh, a good rapport with the subject. There, then they can't be the contact the contact officer anymore. So, and the reason I was asking about your husband being a field training officer or anything like that, or have prior experience is because the way he took charge is something that like a field training officer would do. But I think that speaks volumes to the level of some of the um, recruits that we get, you know, sometimes they just don't have that, you know, we're, we're kind of in a weird thing with these, these younger millennials where they just don't communicate and they don't, you know, uh, they don't posture properly in certain situations. Mm -hmm. So, by him saying, you know, he's going to shoot you, get your gun up, you know, that obviously shows that he understands the severity of the threat. Yeah, he he told her he can shoot you, put, you know, or he can shoot you, point your gun at him. Right. So right, he, he understood that. And the narrative during the trial was, well, he was a cowboy, 18 months experience, floozy rookie, where these two officers had a combined 10 years of service. Mm. Um Officer Pegues, the female, was only one academy class behind or in front of him. Mm -hmm. So she graduated. Ben was in the very next academy class. So it's right. not like she's this 20-year cop who knows, <laughs> oh, crap, I'm in a bad situation. Right. And, and to be fair, you can have however many years of experience, you can still have shitty tactics. Excuse my language here. Like, it's... You know what I mean? Like that doesn't yeah. mean anything. You can say, oh, well, he was a 10 year cop. Okay. If he was bad for 10 years, then yeah. Okay. So he had 10 lucky years. That doesn't mean anything to me. Um, right. Which if you're trying to, if here's the thing though, and here's where it gets kind of weird. And we're going to talk about the trial in just a second, but <laughs> if you're trying to appeal to a, jur a jury of people that don't understand that, then yeah, you say, oh, well, th these people had more experience or they had more time on the job. So obviously they were more squared away. It's very easy to take a jury of your peers and go, oh yeah, no, that makes sense. Like, I think a true jury of our peers for law enforcement should be, Would be cops, other cops. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, what, what, like, I don't know. Like, cause if you don't understand police training procedure and tactics, then how can you begin to talk that but that's that's another another pandora's box that we'll have to open up later but okay so your your husband goes in and the way i saw it in the video and the way you explained it to me it was not that he was this cowboy just going in and you know he just wanted to shoot somebody that day not at all it sounded right. like if anything he wanted to put himself in front of that female officer because she was in the position to get herself shot or killed and he wanted to honestly de-escalate the situation in a more effective manner because she was not doing it. And the fact mm -hmm. that they're standing in this front door, I mean, there's nowhere to go. It, it's a fatal funnel. You know what I mean? And they're right. just, we're told when we're doing building clearing and we're doing different type of response to you get out of that fatal funnel as soon as possible. Right. You don't sit, sit there and have a tea party, which is what those two were doing. Absolutely. So, so the, the event happens and, I saw nothing wrong with it by what I saw. Now in the video I saw, unfortunately it was, it was blurred out the, um, the incident itself. They blurred that part out, which is unfortunate because, and here's why I don't agree. You know, it, it's come to this point where body cam video, if it's not there, it didn't happen. And which is asinine because there's so much that the camera doesn't pick up little nuances, little, mm -hmm. you know, like um, flinch responses, which, you know, 
really, if you can pick up on a flinch response, you can save your life. And we were, and you were talking, did. that's what I was going to say. We were talking um, prior to press and record regarding uh, the instructor that you said that he had that talked about the flinch response and how, you know, luckily they didn't pass away, but still got shot. And we'll talk about that as we go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So the, the event happens, he comes home, I hit my microphone and, and then, so you're talking about it. What is the next, so he, he speaks with CID, IA, mm-hmm. um, he is cleared by department policy. Right. Um, so, and then you said that the train, the other officers were found in violation of policy. What were they in violation of? So again, I don't work for Huntsville police department, so I don't know their okay. SOPs exactly. Um, but from what Ben said, their general SOP with, with dealing with a situation similar to theirs or to that situation would be to surround and call out. Okay. Um, and then also when you are faced with someone who presents an imminent threat to you, i.e. having a gun in their hand, mm-hmm. deadly force is authorized. It doesn't yes. matter. And that goes back to Graham versus Connor. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter where it's pointed you know, gun, knife, baseball bat, whatever, if they have something in their hand that is a threat to your life or serious physical bodily harm, eminent deadly force is authorized. Sure. And, you know, I want I want my non-cop listeners to understand that because I'm sure they've seen it and I've actually been involved in a, in a situation with a guy with knives where, yeah, get your taser out, get your beanbag shotgun out. That's all fine and dandy. There is no less lethal option when a gun is in play. When the, when the other team or the other character has a gun, if they have a gun, a knife, a baseball bat, a wrench. It's deadly force, force is authorized. Yes. But, but lethal I, I force just want to say, force. right. But like, you know how, like sometimes you get a suicidal person with a knife or a butcher's knife mm-hmm. or a cleaver, yep. then yeah, someone's going to get a less lethal. There is no less lethal option when it's a gun versus a gun. You just, you're not going to have someone, because I could see like a, a someone who not, not uh, super under, understanding going, oh, why didn't you, again, the, the age old, why didn't they tase him? There is no tasing when the gun is involved. Right. And I, I just want everyone to understand that. Okay. So after that point. Where, where do we sit? You know, you, you kind of, he was clear to the shooting from yep. a department standpoint. Mm-hmm. Where, what happened then? So they were all cleared uh, other than the remedial training for the other two officers. And they all get cut loose, go back to the road. So Ben goes back to the road, goes back to his shift, you know, and gets back into doing his thing. A month later, he gets pulled into the chief's office and they tell him, hey, the DA is seeking a murder indictment against you. You're getting pulled off the street and we're reassigning you. So he was reassigned to the training academy on administrative uh, duties. During this time, the DA's office is in touch with the chief's office and they say, hey, if you fire him, we won't press charges. And the chief said, no, he did nothing wrong. He followed his training, policy, procedure, state, law, SOP, all that stuff. Ben Darby did the right thing. The other two officers did not. We're not firing him. So they go back and forth. The DA saying, if you fire him, we won't press charges. So uh, the chief stands up for us um, at that time. And throughout the whole, throughout this whole time, the chief has had our back, city of Huntsville, the mayor, the city council, which we can get into a little bit later too. But um, 
so August of 2018, Ben gets informed that they're going to charge him with murder. They had they held a grand jury and they indicted him on the charge of murder. Uh, ben, we go in. Uh, ben gets formally arrested, bonded in and out of jail, uh, has a $20,000 bond, comes home and is immediately put on, like he's still on administrative duty. April of 2019, so actually a year to the date of the incident, he has an immunity hearing for qualified immunity. So Mm -hmm. he goes in, it's a day long. um, He testifies, officers Piggies and Beckles testify, the uh, investigator testifies, we have expert witnesses, you know, the whole thing. I think it was on a Wednesday uh, that this happened. The juror or the judge said, uh, I've got some other things going on, so I'll have a decision for you on Monday. The very next day she had her decision uh, and she denied it. No immunity. So it got on what grounds? She didn't give any. But no, she have she gave she said uh, no denied qualified immunity with no grounds. That that's so there was no um she didn't give any reason no reason just None. nothing yep that's that's so it's it, it's obviously it's ridiculous that he got denied quali- qualified immunity in the first place because he was acting in and of his scope of duty but also for the fact of at least give me a reason like tell me what part didn't match the need for qualified immunity that okay that that makes that's absolute nonsense, but okay. So she denies qualified immunity, denies which I'm it. surprised. I'm also surprised that that didn't come first. Like, you know, the fact that they charged with murder and then they said, well, he had qualified immunity. I feel like the qualified immunity thing should have been like preemptive, you know, like that should have been a given like, Hey, he was on duty. He was working as a police officer. This happened while uh, performing a call for service. Can we even charge him with murder? You know what I mean? Like, It's almost to the point of where did the judge have a preconceived notion of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think from what I know, the judge uh, was a school board lawyer or school board judge. So she had no criminal Mm. law background. So someone who is deciding what books are okay and what books to ban um, is clearly qualified to decide if a man should be uh, lined up with qualified immunity. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Okay. So we, she gives the no immunity decision. Um, it goes up to the state criminal court of appeals. They deny it because of a technicality stating that we didn't have required paperwork that they needed. Well, the trial courts never got us that paperwork in time to what file. What kind of paperwork them. was it? I don't know exactly. Okay. Yeah, I don't know exactly what it was. So, so basically, a technicality in a loophole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So then it goes to the state Supreme Court and they issue no decision, no reason. Um, this was in 2018. I don't remember if it was an election year or not. It is currently. So um, we can get into that till later. We can get into that later. Yeah. But um, okay. So everyone, you know, doesn't allow the immunity. So then 2020 and the great COVID happens. So they shut down jury trials. And we're just on standby. Ben is still employed by the city of Huntsville. And let me go back. When they charged him, the mayor and the chief both made a a press conference, 
had two separate press conferences stating that, quote, Ben Darby is not a murderer and he did what he was supposed to do. He followed Mm -hmm. his training, the policies of the Huntsville Police Department and back publicly backed him. Um, And then the DA gets up there and says the exact opposite. Ben Darby should have never been a police officer. Um, So then the judge comes out and says she issues a gag order. No one's allowed to talk about the case. So from 2018 to May of 2021, we can't say anything. Mm -hmm. So January of 2021, we uh, get notified that we're probably going to have a trial where they're opening, they're looking to open up trials. So they're, we're most likely going to have a trial in the spring. Um, The DA's office walks across the street to our lawyer's office and says, Hey, we want to offer this deal of aggravated manslaughter, no prison time, five years probation. Let us know if he'll take it. So they call Ben. He goes over there, meets with them. They tell him. He's like, no, absolutely not. I didn't commit murder, and this surely is an aggravated manslaughter. And they said, well, go talk is, to your wife. Is aggravated manslaughter like a step down from murder? It's still a felony, yeah, okay. but it's not murder. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So Ben comes home, tells me about it, and I was like, it's your choice, but, you know, to me, that's a no-go. And he's like, mm-hmm. well, that's my, yeah, that's my decision. I just want to talk, you know, talk to you about it, you know, because uh, it directly affects my life, too. So uh, he lets his lawyers know, yeah, no deal. So to keep in mind, the DA offers, or the DA says, fire him, and we won't press charges. And now he offers aggravated manslaughter no prison time whatsoever five years probation okay so we ben says no we go to trial so we get a trial date of may 3rd uh that whole week so because of covid restrictions they close the courtroom so no one's allowed to go in no public no uh co-workers even his wife can't go into court Mm. with him So it makes the illusion that he has no support. Mm -hmm. He's all out there by himself. So they had a separate room for us to sit in and watch it off of a Zoom feed. But no one was allowed to be in court with him. It was the only people that know what happened and what didn't happen that week are the jury, the judge, and the state and the defense. You know, those are the only players that know exactly what happened. And so... Uh, May 3rd was jury selection, so they held that, and it was all those pe- all those aforementioned people were present, and we weren't allowed to see it or anything. Um, during jury selection, the ADA gets up and says, how many of you think that there's a war on cops? That's one of his questions. <laughs> and everyone raises their hand, and one of the ladies in there, because Ben was telling me this, you know, after the fact. Yeah. Uh, He's like, he says, the DA says, how many, or the ADA says, how many of you think there's a war on cops? And one of the females who raised her hand, like, well, yeah, duh. She's pointing at Ben, like, hello, this guy, you know? Mm. And so he follows it up and says, well, how many of you think it's warranted because there's bad apples like Derek Chauvin and Ben Darby? So you're already casting doubt. You're already casting doubt. Yeah. That's a corrupt cop. Because you put right. him in the same boat as Derek Chauvin, right? Those are two and and totally I just totally separate situations. I was just going to say, and you know, Ben's situation happened years before Derek Chauvin, right? And this was it, April twenty eighteen was Ben's case, 
Right. So we're looking at three years after the fact. And there is absolutely nothing of the two cases that is near similar. Like absolutely even not. It, so that that was completely asinine. How can you have a anybody like that's that's already promoting a bias mm-hmm. towards the defendant on the case like that? Yep. That would be crazy. That would be like going to a, a robbery trial and be like, how many of you here thinks rob people that rob stores are bad? Like this guy or the guy sitting right over here in the defense box? Like that is completely asinine. That's so yep. stupid. Yep, that was allowed to be uh, questioned. Jeez. Uh, so the next day they go to trial, they take the whole day do jury selection. Uh, next day they go to trial. So we go to this pre set up room. Um, it's me, some family members, um, people from my department there to support me, different lawyers, you know, whoever wants to come and the trial starts. So at the beginning of the trial, because it was done on a zoom feed. So all that we saw was the witness box and then part of the judge's desk area. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't see the entire courtroom or anything like that. So trial starts and there's some microphone issues with, we can't hear that great. So they had a, like someone told the judge and the judge said, well, let's take a pause and try and figure this, you know, fix this so that they can hear correctly. Um, Visual was always fine. We didn't have any issues up to that point. Mm Okay, so we're going through the trial, and um, there was a lot of evidence and testimony that was not allowed to be heard. So evidence like Ben was cleared in the incident review board, the other two weren't, in the sense of they didn't follow their training. That The jury wasn't allowed to know that because it, was, it spoke to the ultimate issue. Um, there was a... Uh, individual who was a neighbor of Mr. Parker who uh, came in to testify and he had had several conversations with Mr. Parker about policing and Mr. Parker told this individual, I have a plan to lure cops into my house and kill them. So he gets on the stand and our lawyers are starting to question him and I don't remember what the exact question was, but something to the effect of, did he like police or what was his thoughts on police? And the neighbor said, oh, he hated police. Objection, objection, objection. That's hearsay. Mm -hmm. And the camera cut off. Gone. No audio, no video. And so we're all in there like, well, what the heck just happened? You know? And then a few minutes go by and it comes back up and it's a different person. That individual is no longer on the stand. It's an officer talking about um, tattoos that were on Mr. Parker's body. One specifically being a white supremacist tattoo. Okay. So going back to the testimony of the neighbor, the state objected because they said it was hearsay. Mm-hmm. Well, a direct conversation between two people isn't hearsay. Mm-hmm. It's direct witness testimony. Okay. So regardless, that neighbor was allowed to speak to the court record, but the jury was not allowed to hear it. So the jury got dismissed from the room. And this is according to Ben, because at this point, we don't see anything. Right. Because like we saw Ben on lunch break and was like, you know, what, what happened? What, you know, what was going on? And he said the jury got dismissed from the room and this individual spoke to the court record. So his testimony was heard by the court record, 
but the jury wasn't allowed to hear it. Mm-hmm. That's weird. You yeah. know, if it's allowed on the court record, why can't the jury hear it? Right. So um, another uh, flaw with the testimony issues was a training advisor that Ben had in the academy uh, who was a street cop. He was on the SWAT team. Uh, he was working. I think he worked third shift. He was on a call of a standoff with an individual who was standing on the front porch with two I think it was a long gun or a, a short, a shotgun and a rifle um, in his, in each hand pointed down at the ground. So this officer is on the call. He grabs his rifle. Um, he has more specialized training as a, a SWAT guy. Uh, Cause they go through more training and he is trained on the individual waiting for movement. You know, just that's the slightest movement of his shoulder and he was going to shoot him. And the individual flicks his wrists faster than the officer can visualize and gets a round off and he, he gets shot in the face. Thank God it was only bird shot, mm-hmm. but um, he gets hit in the face. I don't, I don't know the rest of the story after that, mm-hmm. but you know, point being action is faster than reaction. Sure. If the actor knows when he's going to act. Okay. The reactor doesn't. So even if an officer has their gun, which, which this officer did, he had his, his gun trained on the individual just waiting for movement. And that individual was able to get a shot off before the officer was able to recognize that. It's just like your classic game that kids play, like slap hands, you know, mm-hmm, where they're, mm-hmm. they're holding their hand on top of the other one and they're trying not to get their hands slapped. Same thing. Sure. If I'm doing the slapping, I know when I'm going to slap your hand. Because I know when I'm going to turn my hands over. You don't know. You're just waiting. So um, that and what's also important is that training instructor, um, Ben's academy class was the first academy that that training instructor taught over. So that was the first time that that instructor was able to give his personal life experience on the street, that he, the call that he answered in training to 25 new cadets. Mm-hmm. Um, they were trained that action is faster than reaction and that you don't have to wait. And that comes into play with Graham versus Connor and that the, the exact language, I'm going to butcher it, but you don't have to wait for the beat of the gun to be on you mm-hmm. to use force. If you feel that your life or someone else's life is in uh, imminent danger. Sure. So um, their testimony wasn't allowed to be heard. Um, the, the Which state... that, I mean, I mean, that's almost like saying like an expert witness mm-hmm. uh, isn't allowed to be heard in the trial. Like this is all pertinent information. I don't understand what, what was the reasoning behind that? Because they didn't want, it, Ben was a political football. They didn't want what covered him to be promoted to the jury so that they could make that decision. That's okay. Because, uh, you yeah. know, because if they don't know, if they don't know that, then, you know, right. like you said right. earlier, your jury's, your jury's not consisted of 12 cops. It's nurses, engineers, vehicle maintenance guys, sure. IT techs, you know, literally uh, your, nobody that has grocery attendant, no one yeah. that has policing experience. Right. So and right all, all cops gate, do whatever they can to get out of jury. jury yeah, duty, you exactly. Know what I mean, so it's, but I feel like 
I mean, obviously this is a tactic done to hurt Ben's case. I just don't understand how the, the court would allow it. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's literally information to basically even the playing field. Cause automatically, I mean, we'll take off the part where, you know, they basically painted him as the bad guy in jury selection, but it gives a chance for the defense to go, all right, well, here's what he was operating with. Here's the knowledge that he had walking into that door. And they, they totally didn't allow that. And, you know, I get that the prosecutor is trying to make their case. I get that part and trying to, you know, hurt the the case of the defense. I also get that. But the fact that the judge allowed it is just mind boggling. Is this also, is this the same uh, school board judge? Yeah. So his qualified immunity judge and this judge are the same person. Oh, okay. Okay. So um, their testimony wasn't allowed. Um, their training and like the training standards weren't allowed to be introduced. The fact that Piggies and Beckles uh, were, they had to go, they were commanded to go back to the academy for a special remedial training session of that. Um, Case law was not allowed into the trial. That's got to be the first time in in a trial that I've heard case law hasn't been allowed. Hasn't been allowed. Yeah. Yeah. So the jury was not allowed to be instructed on Graham versus Connor, Tennessee versus Garner, Montoot versus Carr. Penley versus Esslinger, uh, Grzynski versus uh, Bradshaw. I think I'm pronouncing that the first one right. Um, but what's also important is some of those cases are come from the 11th Circuit, which is what Alabama falls under. Mm-hmm. So we all know that case law is, supersedes state law. Mm-hmm. And it was said by the judge that it because it wasn't Alabama law, it didn't, it didn't matter. <laughs> wow. Even though I'm sure the the Alabama law adopted it, right? Because I mean, I know that sometimes case law, you know, some um, federal case law may not be accepted by Florida or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. But were these cases accepted by Alabama, and she just didn't know properly? I don't know if she knew. I don't know. I don't okay. know. But regardless, like. I mean, obviously, Graham versus Connor and and the other ones; those are those are you know, those are the pinnacle bedrock, of police work. They're bedrock cases. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, those weren't allowed in. Um, it also wasn't allowed in that Ben acted on his objectable, objectively reasonableness of the situation. So they viewed him through the eyes of Officer Pegues. Because, well, she didn't feel like she was in danger. So why did Ben Darby? And then there's no difference between Ben Darby, a trained police officer who answered a call for service, than Joe Blow, criminal, walking down your street, barging into your house and shooting you. Mm-hmm. There's, they said that there was no difference between them. So you're discrediting him already like right you're actively not helping him because you're not allowing the correct case law to be applied he wasn't joe blow criminal he was a certified law enforcement officer of the state of alabama specifically huntsville police department right and of that you know he was working that day he was Mm -hmm. properly dressed you know in his yeah, uniform. it was obvious that he was a police officer. He right. had a full... And it was a call for service that the subject initiated. I would say, mm-hmm. 
I'm total. I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. It's really hard, but I'm trying. And I would say, okay, let's say he was on a walking beat and he looked and he saw the subject in his living room window, do you know, with a gun to his head, and then he rushed in and shot him. Okay, you know what? Then I'd be like, absolutely, this this prosecutor has a point, and we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. But that's not what happened at all. And I've heard right. the the nine one one call where he said. I'm I'm fixing to blow my brains out or whatever he said, get yeah. the police here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that. He initiated the call. So it's not, again, it's not like someone walks in my house right now and shoots me. Even if, you know, I was doing whatever, it's totally a different circumstance. Right. And it wasn't portrayed that way, unfortunately. So um, we get to closing arguments. Uh, they make an attack on Ben, the captain over training he was then captain at the time. He's been promoted since. But um, Ben, the captain, and the chief of police saying that there's a big conspiracy and they're trying to protect a rogue cop and you can't you can't trust Huntsville Police Department. And so uh, police know, and for your viewers who aren't law enforcement, you don't have to prove anything in closing arguments. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the state goes first and they say, you know, they, they say whatever they're going to say. And then the defense gets up. So our lawyers get up and rebut everything. And then the state gets their, the state gets the final say, and they just hit the, hit the ball, you know, out of the park again against Ben and say, you know, he should have never been a cop. He's a disgrace to the badge. He's a cowboy rogue officer should have never been hired. Ben saved his own life and the other two lives of those officers that day. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, he is, you know, he said, um, he was, uh, it was unfortunate that it became necessary to do what he had to do, but three cops still came home at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every cop op that every cop out there, they don't know you put your vest on, you know, when you go on your shift, you don't know if you're coming home at the end of shift Mm -hmm. after that end of that eight or 10 or 12 hours that you're working. You don't know because you don't know what you're about to walk out your door to. But you're going to do everything you can in your power to get home because police always go home. That's the end goal of every shift. And Ben permitted that. Ben made sure that that happened. So if anything, Pegues especially is lucky she's not dead because I don't remember if I mentioned this or not. The gun that Mr. Parker had was a painted flare gun. So it was painted black, but you can't tell that in, yeah. in the 10 seconds that, you're, that he had, you know, a gun's a gun. Sure. Um, and it was loaded with compromised buckshot. So not only did he refuse to listen to seven commands by uniformed police officers to drop the weapon, he, I mean, and they didn't know this at the time that it was loaded, but they also, I mean, again, a weapon is a weapon. Sure. And you have to go that it's, why, why else would they use a fake gun? You know, they didn't know it was loaded at the time, but you, ha- you can make that assumption that it is. Because why else would you have it? Right. Absolutely. And why are you using it in that capacity? Right. Right. So, um, you know, if, if Mr. Parker had the mindfulness to even do so, when Officer Begeese looked away from him and looked at Ben and said, no, I don't think he's going to do it and took her gun off of him, any of them could have been shot. Absolutely. Because you don't know where that round's going to go because it's, I mean, it's, it's compromised already but he could have broke his shot and one of them could have been dead so now we got a law enforcement officer funeral a line of duty death 
in that whole sure you know right. that whole situation right it's like that that training and it's even been an internet post i've seen it for years now where they, it's it's the barrel of two guns and it says all right yes find yes. find the bb gun oh it's too late you've already been shot yep. and that's exactly it doesn't matter if you're just seeing the side of it or whatever a, a black it doesn't matter the color either because i've seen all these different tricked out guns a gun's a gun a gun's a gun exactly and it's the the fact that that would even come into question would be crazy because that's more of a Again, it goes back down to objective reasonableness. Right, which was not allowed to be viewed. Was not allowed to, ben was not allowed to have that. They did not mm-hmm. allow him to be viewed as an objectively reasonable officer who acted in accordance with his training within the department in the state academy, outside training. Was the department policy allowed in or did they, they ban that too? They did. I re- if I remember correctly, that, that was brought up. Yeah, and the use of uh, um, like against an imminent threat was brought up. Hmm. Okay. I'm surprised they allowed that. But I mean, there's so many times that the judge turned off the video feed. So we went, we didn't know what was going on, mm-hmm. you know, cause we're sitting in this room watching the trial since his co- sixth amendment constitutional right is being violated to a public trial. We don't know what's going on. Right. You know, and we it's... talked to him on our lunch break and we talked to him at the end of the day and try to fill in the blanks that we don't know, but. Right. And it's crazy that in this room you were in, was that in the courthouse? It was. Yeah. I so, think we were and, on the and, bottom floor and he was on like the third or fourth floor. Okay. And you're, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just realizing this. It just dawned on me. So you're in this room in the courthouse building filled with all these different people, probably smaller than your average courtroom because of COVID restrictions, because they didn't want to spread the disease. Right. Uh, whereas I'm pretty sure in the courtroom, you guys would have been able to sit further apart and you would, you know, it's just, it's showing how terribly they, they slanted the deck against Ben. Right. Cause even, so for his sentencing, we, so for his sentencing, they allowed uh, me, his father and I um, testified for him. So see, we sat behind him on, you know, the defense side of the room. Um, his mother was allowed in the courtroom, but she had to beat the media to get a spot. Mm-hmm. So like they, they spaced it. I think every other or every two seats, someone was allowed to sit. So basically four or five people were able to sit in the, in the spectator area mm-hmm. instead of, you know, however many seats were in there. Sure. So, but if you're still under the COVID, you know, cause COVID was still a thing, August of 2021, it mm-hmm. still is today. You know, I mean, we're, I'm not right. going to go down that whole rabbit hole, but <laughs> right, right. you know, COVID's COVID. It's. Yeah. I just think it's, it's bizarre that, you know, they're saying, Oh, no one's allowed in the courtroom, but you can sit in this, a much smaller room on property but you just can't come and be in support of the defendant and yeah. you know that that's that's the part that was just mind-boggling to me yeah I, I will say uh i don't know how big the courtroom was we were in a pretty decent sized room and mm-hmm. they did have the seats you know separated or whatever but all the people that were there for ben moved our seats and moved together because mm-hmm. we're a family and we're there sure. to stand in you know for ben and you know we don't care about covid of course, of course. So, okay, so the trial finishes, and what's the result? We know the so, result. So, yeah, so um, we rested on, I think it was Thursday, um, and Thursday, like right before lunch, I think. So we broke for lunch. We went back to the precinct, and Ben stayed with his lawyer. And, you know, like we ate lunch together, and then we were like, okay, we're just going to hang out and wait. 
Um, we went through the end of the day with no hearing, like no decision, I'm sorry. Came back Friday morning and um, one of the jurors, we got notified that one of the jurors had to go to the hospital. Um, we don't know why that wasn't made apparent to us. Um, I think she had a panic attack. So they had, she had some type of medical emergency and she could no longer stand on as a juror. So they had to bring a new juror in and restart the whole thing because the new juror wasn't present during deliberations. You know, you only mm -hmm. have, you have 14 jurors, but only 12 are in the actual mm -hmm. decision making process. Okay. So they had to restart and uh, right before lunch. Um, and one of our attorneys called me and said, Hey, the, the verdict's in. So I hurried up and called Ben. I said, Hey, I just heard from the lawyer, one of the lawyers, the verdict's in. And so he asked the lawyer that he was with and he's like, yeah. And Ben said, just meet us there. So again, not in the courtroom. Ben went to the courtroom with his legal team. Um, you know, we all went to the COVID room and as we're walking in, um, the judge was giving, like thanking the jury for doing their civil duty, blah, blah, blah. And she reads the verdict and she said, like, I don't know vernacular, but William Darby, we find you guilty and you're convicted of murder. And I dropped and just total shock. Mm -hmm. We felt even, even with everything that wasn't allowed to be presented and everything that went wrong, we didn't have a conviction in our mind. We had 99% chance this is going to be a hung jury. 1% chance he's going to get a full acquittal, you know, mm -hmm. but mainly, yeah, it's going to be, a, it's going to be, be a, a hung jury. And she comes back and says, you're guilty of murder. You're being convicted of murder. And I just dropped. And I remember looking up and basically the room had cleared out for just me and his parents and a close friend, family friend of mine were in the room just, you know, shocked besides ourselves. And um, a deputy had came in throughout the whole week. There was deputies in the room with us. Um, and a deputy came in and said, Mrs. Darby, I need you to come with me. And I was like, uh, they're coming with, you know, like my family. And he said, no, um, only his parents can come with you. So um, we got separated from them and he, he brought me to Ben. Um, I was able to say goodbye to him and, uh, he, you know, he was in, he's in custody, he's in cuffs. And he said, I might be able to come home tonight. Just hang on, you know, hang in there. It's going to be okay. We're going to figure this out. Just hold on. So they take him to the jail and he gets processed in. I don't know exactly what, you know, what that whole, as a, as a, prisoner I don't know what that's like because I've never been arrested mm -hmm. but like he goes through that whole process and we get notified that someone posted his bond in full okay. um a hundred thousand dollars don't know who it was but someone did it um mm -hmm. thank god for them you know that allowed Ben to come home and the judge said uh we're gonna have his sentencing in August so he was home we were home together we were able to get as much I mean we were pretty much just in case, you know, cause you have to, you have to plan for the worst case scenario. Right. But we didn't expect it. To, we never expected this to happen. Um, so we got, we had that time to be together um, and just get things in order. Uh, we had 
asked people to write character reference letters for Ben stating, you know, what they thought of Ben and, you know, all of that. So we got 72 different people from all walks of life, people he grew up with, uh, people from church, people from school, teachers, former co-workers, former em employers, you know, the whole gamut. And so they all wrote a character witness letter on Ben's behalf, stating how he was of good character. He had no ill intent. He was just doing his job, you know, all that stuff. And those were submitted to the judge before sentencing. And so we go to sentencing and it's me, his dad, and his mom were allowed in, like I said. And then for witnesses, um, he had five different witnesses, me, his dad, a coworker who was his supervisor, our pastor, and a child, childhood friend of Ben's. And we all separately. So the state starts and they say, you know, um, so the minimum sentence for murder in Alabama with a weapon is 20 years. So if you get sentenced to 20 years alone, you're eligible for an appeal bond. So if you can afford your bond, you can come home during your appeal. If you get sentenced to 20 years in, a, in one day to life, you're not eligible for an appeal bond and you have to stay in custody until your appeal comes back. So the state or yeah, the state gets up there and they say Ben Darby never showed any remorse and he's not sorry for what he had to do. We we suggest a 25 year minimum sentence. Mm -hmm. Keeping in mind 20 years is 20 years is the minimum and they offer two deals of no prison time beforehand and tr fire him and, and we won't charge him and the manslaughter deal of no prison time, five years probation. So they didn't care if he went to prison mm -hmm. like that, that, that didn't matter before, but right. because they had to go through the whole, the whole gamut and go through this whole thing, 25 years, at least we mm -hmm. want him to have 25 years in prison. So she's taking notes of everything that the state's saying. We get up there to testify. We go one at a time. She swears us in, you know, and when I got sworn in, you know, I, I begged her, you know, Ben didn't, Ben is not a bad person. He's of good moral character, just speaking to his character. And that's what the other four people did as well. Um, ben got up there and testified as well. And I noticed when I spoke to the judge, she only looked at me when she swore me in. That's the only time we made eye contact. Now, in, keep in mind, I'm speaking to her. I'm looking at her in the eyes the whole, I don't know how long I was up there, like five minutes. It felt, it felt like an eternity, but I am begging her, please give my husband leniency. He followed his training. He's not a, he's not a bad person. He's of good character on and on and on. Um, never looked at me. After the sentencing, I spoke with the other four witnesses and they said the same thing. She never looked at them, never made eye contact with them after they were sworn in and we all came to the same conclusion. She already had her mind made up. Like we are just going through the formalities mm -hmm. of sentencing to testify on his behalf. And she says, okay, I order you to 25 years in prison. And uh, they wanted a $120,000 fine. <laughs> so again, fire him and we won't charge him. 
take this manslaughter deal, no prison time, five years probation, no custody, never mind 25 years and $120,000 in fines. Jeez. Deputy comes over or the bailiff comes over, puts him in handcuffs. He gives me his ring, you know, and his ID and gives me a hug. And he says, you know, I'll I'll see you soon. And I haven't seen him since in person. Mm -hmm. Um, I am allowed to talk to him on the phone and we FaceTime right now about once a week. It's all through the jail. So it's, everything's recorded and it's not, I can't have a genuine conversation with him because I don't know who's listening. Sure. And I can't share certain things with him right now. He just has to know that I'm fighting like hell to get him out of prison. Yeah. Okay. So, um, he, he gets taken and we, you know, we, I go home, I have my family and friends with me, you know, I'm off work, obviously. Um, I can't handle going into work, obviously, because my husband just got sentenced to 25 years. And the chief and the mayor still had another press conference and said, uh, you know, although the jury came to the conclusion we did, we do not agree with the conclusion. And we believe that Ben Darby is not a murderer. Mm -hmm. And he has the right to an appeal and all that. Um, Prior to trial, there was a, uh, a foundation, the Blue Justice Project out of Pennsylvania. They reached out. To, she reached out to Ben. She's a former Pennsylvania officer who was involved in a shooting and was acquitted. And she runs her own foundation. And she contacted HPD and said, I need to talk. Get me in connection with this officer, Darby. So they're on the phone for the last, from 2018 to trial, you know, and she said, do you need any financial help? And he said, no, um, it doesn't seem like it. The, the, the city council and the mayor and the police chief um, have all agreed to pay for my legal fees up to $125,000. So, you know, save it for another officer. But thank you so much for wanting to support us. And um, they said, well, you know, if you need anything, call us and, and we'll help you. And when I was saying, so the drive into sentencing obviously was very um, somber, serious because it's sentencing day, you know, mm-hmm. um, he's going away. Most likely it could, it, there, there could have been a chance that he didn't, but you know, I had that mindset. I don't know when I'm going to see him next, you know? And so we're talking about things going into sentencing. And he said, uh, if I go, if I don't come home tonight, call Lisa. And so Um, I get home after sentencing and I remembered that. And so I called and I've never spoken to this lady. Um, You know, I don't know her. We've never met her Uh, prior to that time. um, Ben's just had several conversations on the phone with her. I knew of her, but I didn't, didn't know her. So I called her. I was like, Hey, uh, this is Keelan Darby. I'm Ben Darby's wife. And she said, how'd it go today? And um, you know, I started crying and, you know, went through with her and, uh, she said, help is on the way. Um, I'm sending you money. I'll send you a check tomorrow. They had immediate assistance from them. Um, and they've helped support us and continue to support us, um, up to this time to help with legal fees. Um, as we're six, we're, we're in a six figure digit right now of Mm. fighting his appeal. Um, you know, and we're still trying to fight it. So we're, we're seeking, um, help in that way. Cause you know, 
um, I can't do it on a cop salary. Sure, you know, sure. You don't get paid enough, which that's not why we, either of us went into this profession. But that's just across the board. You know, you can't you can't support this on a cop salary. Um, and then so Ben went to the Madison County Jail for 19 days um, because of COVID. He had to go into isolation, but that also applied to him because he was a police officer and Madison County Jail doesn't have a protected custody unit. So even though the COVID protocol, I think was 10 days or 14 days at that time, he still had to stay in that isolation cell because he was a cop Hmm. to not be around the other inmates. So he was, um, for 19 days, he was 23 in and one out. So he got an hour break out of his cell. (laughs) Wow. Just an hour um, every day. And he used that to call me for 30 minutes and then he would call his parents. And then he got um, transferred to the state processing uh, facility. And he gets there and he has to re-go through COVID isolation, even though he hasn't seen you know, another human being or interacted, you know, other than the jail staff since August 20th. So they put him back in isolation for, you know, COVID isolation. And then uh, he gets moved to PC. So while he's there, he only gets a break out of his cell every three to four days for 15 (laughs) minutes. So he got moved from Kilby or from Madison County to Kilby and the news found out about it before I did, which infuriated me. Mm-hmm. Um, I called down there and I said, hey, my name is Kaylin Darby. My husband is William Darby. I, is he at your facility? And sh- she gave me a hard time and was like, well, I need to know in- more information. You know, I need his birthday and his social and his favorite color and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, had an attitude with me on the phone. And I said, well, when did he get there? I can't tell you that. Okay. Well, like I'm his wife. Right. And the media, the public knew before I did. So he gets to Kilby. He's there for 30 days. Again, in strict isolation. And he only gets a break every three to four days. So from the time that he got moved from Madison County till the time that he got his first phone call at Kilby was like 56 hours. Wow. And I'm, I'm back to work at this time. I think I only took a week off at work. Um, and Ben calls me and, you know, I knew he got moved, but getting that first phone call and to just hear his voice and to hear that he was okay was obviously very emotional, but it just, it made me, the circumstances sucked, but it made me feel better. You know, knowing that I could hear his voice. If I can hear his voice every day, I'll be okay. Obviously Mm -hmm. I want him home you know, eight months ago. But if I can hear his voice every day, that helps me to keep going. Sure. So um, he's stuck at Kilby for 30 days. He does that whole thing. And then he gets um, processed and moved to the, um, it's the only facility in the state that's, that has protective custody. So he's in a, in a facility that houses protective custody on one wing and then like general population on the other. But He's in protected custody, so it's ex-cops, politicians, like your VIP people. Right. right. But there's also uh, call-outs in there from general general population. So they're in there because 
they have a threat against their life in general population, so they put them in PC. Mm-hmm. So um, I was on the phone with him one time, and he was like, I got to let you go. They're starting to gas because someone did something, and they had to gas them. <laughs> um, he said, someone, there's dope in the prison. Like, it's like, he said, like, it's just like TV. There's dope in the prisons. There's uh, weapons. There's shanks. You know, um, he's not safe. And mm-hmm. he can't. You know, God forbid he has to protect himself. He's stuck because he can't mess up in prison and get a prison charge. Right. So when this comes back, which it will, when this comes back and he gets acquitted, if he has a prison charge, now he's stuck in prison for a prison charge. For a prison charge, yeah. Right? So Mm -hmm. he has to be extremely careful of who he interacts with. Again, he's in protective custody. I get that. But... He has to be extremely careful of his interactions. Right. And if anything were to happen violently, then it could backfire on his appeal going, see, he's got a propensity for violence. Look at that. I told you. Yep. Yep. So the the prison obviously is a uh, crazy situation. Where are you now? Like, what is, what is the next step for you? Obviously, you said that you guys are going through the appeal process, which is long drawn out and expensive. Um, so where, where does that put you? So we're going through the appeal process right now. We filed our appeal brief um, in the beginning of February. Uh, so let me back up. September of 2021, we filed a motion for a new trial. And we listed 33 reasons as to why we should be given a new trial. The judge denied that because a judge, any judge is not going to say, oh, yeah, I messed up. Here's a new trial. We're just not going to do it, you know. Um, So she denied that. We filed our appeal with the three main point. We took three main points. Um, The whole whole brief includes the 33 reasons, but the three main points outlined are the Sixth Amendment uh, constitutional violation of a closed trial. Number two being that the jury wasn't allowed to be instructed on relevant case law. And then three, the great weight of the evidence would not permit a jury to convict him. So um, we filed that. And then now the prosecutor is the attorney general. So it's out of local politics in Madison Mm, County. Okay. Um, The attorney general just filed their brief. And now we are answering their brief. Um, it's kind of like closing arguments. It's just swapped. So we go, they go, we go again. And then it goes to the judges at the Court of Criminal Appeals. Uh, it should also be noted that the National Fraternal Order of Police wrote an amicus brief in favor of what Ben did. So if you've got the, the chief of police, the mayor, the city council, the whole department backing him, and then you get the National FOP, which is a very well-known and very well-recognized police organization that talks about tactics and training and gives opinions on how law enforcement should conduct themselves. Why would they back him if he was a, quote, rogue cowboy cop? Right. You know, um, why would they stick their neck out for him? Because he didn't do anything wrong. Because yeah. he's, not, he's not guilty of murder. What so my the the big question that's been on my mind for quite a while while you're speaking is what is it with the the district attorney that he was up against and that filed the charges on him? What 
is in it for them? Why does that person or that organization have such a vendetta out against your husband? Where did that come from? Why are they pursuing this so strongly? I was when 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 Nick called me up and told me about this, I was expecting it to be a post Derek Chauvin case, right? Because mm-hmm. that's when every use of force was being ridiculed mm-hmm. in such a way. Uh, this is not, this was before that. So I don't even, you know, we're not looking at woke legislation. We're looking at pre-wokeness, which I just hate using that word as an official term, but you know, so do we, is this, does this person have a uh, precedent or a previous dealing with cops where they are just against cops altogether? Or do we know why this is even a thing? I don't, I don't know exactly. Um, Ben has never, to our knowledge, had any dealings with the DA. Um, obviously, he's never been charged before. We've never been, the, been down this road. Um, the DA's office has former police officers as their ADAs, mm-hmm. um, you know, who quit policing and go to law school and get their degrees and do whatever. But I don't know. It doesn't make sense because there have been multiple officer-involved shootings since Ben's case, um, some of them including suicidal subjects. And they're all clear, mm-hmm. you know, and right. I'm not, I, you know, and that, that might come across the wrong way. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm happy that no one is, you know, sure, no one sure. from his department is going through what, because this is a, it, it, such a miscarriage of justice uh, committed against Ben Darby. But, you know, if they're okay, why are you picking on Ben Darby? Right. What, what about his case stands out that we're going at such veracity mm-hmm. and none of it makes sense. I mean, we're talking about, like you, you use the term miscarriage of justice. It truly is. It's just a violation of, of so many different things. Uh, every, you know, um, I kicked off the episode with the, um, the saying that when I was going to the Academy, you know, I'd rather be, uh, tried by 12 and carried by six. And, and that's at this exactly. point, right. And at this point, you know, hearing your case, it's like, no, not, I mean, you're damned if you do damned if you don't. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so frustrating because nothing that he did, obviously to my eyes seems criminal at all. And especially when you break down all and I, I'm a I'm a well now I'm a former cop but I'm a cop right I don't have the massive legal training of the lawyers and the prosecutors and things like that but on the very base level of it all objective reasonableness and all those different case laws that you listed all of it falls within the scope of duty like none of this makes any sense whatsoever right and to go back to what you're saying about um, judge by. Judge, uh, judge by 12, by, six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cause Ben and I talked about that. He said, I would rather, because the judge ruled against him already at the prelim. So he, he's like, I don't want a bench trial because she's already against me there. So I've got a better chance. Hopefully, you know, with mm-hmm. 12 untrained citizens, unfortunately, um, right. you know, maybe they can see how I didn't do anything wrong. So you know, he, he, he made that decision. And, you know, quite frankly, if I were in his shoes, I would have chosen the same way. I would have, sure. I would have went for the jury trial. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we go, we can go back to the original incident and there's nothing that Ben did that I wouldn't have seen myself doing, you know? So putting yourself in his shoes, I don't, 
I mean, yeah, we can we can Monday morning morning quarterback all the tactics that went into it. Obviously, it was a shitty situation. He had ten in. seconds, and people, right. and that's what what people don't understand. Some cops included. He had ten seconds to make that decision. He didn't yeah. have the luxury of time and space, right. and, which would have know, been which would have been, been availed great. to him if the original officers acted correctly. Correct. If but. Yeah. Ben Darby would not be in prison today if Janice Chapigis didn't go in that house. Yes, flat out. So that being said, you know, we don't we don't get to pick the the cards that are dealt to us. That's perfectly fine. So given that situation, because I could totally see and I'm sure I mean, I don't know because I really don't watch these things, but I could totally see these Monday morning quarterback uh, tactic videos just tearing this apart, obviously, of course. <laughs> but we can't do that. We have to view what we have and and if nothing else learn from it or whatever or in my case empathize with it put myself in his shoes and go okay what would i have done and i would have done the exact same thing i would have you know i would have pulled them well that's the thing you couldn't have even just pulled them out she was too far in to just go all right come on let, let's go well because at, at that point that, if i can interject nope, at that point nope, yep she's already vapor locked showing that she has no control of the situation You've got a guy with a gun in the room. If you mm-hmm. and the other officer is, you know, halfway in the house, halfway out with his gun on the ground. If Ben goes to try and pull her out, her gun is out. What if that scares her and she has a sympathetic reaction, puts a shot off, and then Parker shoots at them? Or right. Parker shoots himself. He had to hurry up and make a decision. He didn't sure. have the luxury sure. of time. So exactly. everyone out there who's Monday morning quarterbacking him, you weren't there. And right, I, you exactly. Know, you and you you never will be. You you know that you can try to replicate that situation as much as possible, but you're not going to have the feelings and the surroundings and the sounds right, and the, and the, the smells thoughts and, and the, exactly none of that can be replicated. Right. And you you can't do it that way. No, not at all. And uh, you know, I and when I when I'm saying like I would do what Ben did, I'm not I'm not trying to you know do say anything other than Based on as as I was trained as a police officer, it was all in line with what he did. You know what I mean? Like it was it, he went in there to cover his fellow officer and to end the threat. You know what I mean? There was there was a true and dangerous threat in that room. You know, what, how we got here is, is irrelevant at this point because we got there anyway. So what he did was in my mind, in my, you know, worthless peon cop brain was justified so the fact that we are even here is ridiculous so now the the time the clock is go ahead one thing i want to mention that i don't think i've mentioned yet so he was sentenced at the end of august at the beginning of september i traveled to our capital and had a meeting with our post commission um alabama police officers standards and training commission Mm -hmm. who dictate what's taught in the police academy okay for the entire state Alabama has 10 state academies. Huntsville is their own state academy. So when Ben went to the academy, it was held in his in department. When I went to my academy, I went to a regional academy. So I had people from all over the state at my academy. It wasn't just my department. So I had asked uh, the commission, I said, hey, do we still have 10 academies in the state of Alabama? And they said, yes, we do. And I said, okay. I said, are we still taught? Are we still teaching new recruits? That when they're faced with a threat to their life or the life of another person, a threat of death or serious 
serious bodily harm, that they are to eliminate that threat. And they said, yes, we're still teaching that. I said, then why is my husband in prison? Because he did exactly what he was trained to do based off of what you just answered. And they couldn't tell me anything. We are still teaching cops in Alabama. Basically, if you shoot this person, you're going to go to prison. That's a problem. Yeah. That is a major problem. Because what happened after Ben Ben Darby was uh, convicted of murder in Huntsville, the people that um, I still talk with over there, they said no one did anything. People went to work and that was it. They weren't proactive because why? They knew that their DA would charge them with murder if they did something in accordance to the training and policies and procedures and law that they're trained in. Right. So what's, what's the point at that point? What is the point of going out there and risking your life? Because if you try to defend your life, you're going to wind up, you're going to get in trouble. Yep. Yeah. Which I mean, at the end of the day was one of the deciding factors why I stepped away. You know, it was, Mm -hmm. why am I going to risk my life? And on the flip side, the other factor was, I'm going to risk my life. And when I arrest this person who could potentially take my life, he's going to be out the next day. So those were the two deciding factors. And the fact that, you know, you're clear as day, you know, you are experiencing that one fear. And I think, you know, we all go into this profession selflessly knowing that at any point we could be forced or faced with a life and death situation. And that's, understood you know we all know yeah you know that when you sign up for the job you know that that's a possibility you may have to i mean i don't know how many times you know i pull my gun out on multiple calls because i understand and recognize the threat dictated in the call um thankfully i've never had to discharge my weapon but i know that the chance is there on every call that i go on absolutely it's just kind of you know this story And there's multiple, unfortunately, out there where you go, I went, why? You know what I mean? This is, this is such an eye-opening experience situation. You know, it's, it's, it's such a terrible, terrible thing that is going on. So when is this appeal supposed to, when, when's the next court date? When's the next thing that we're working towards? So unfortunately, I don't have a direct answer for that. Um, all of the court's paperwork for the appeal, because now we're answering the attorney general's brief. Uh-huh. Uh, I believe that's the middle of April that that's due. So general ballpark, May, we, that all that paperwork will be submitted. Um, unfortunately for us, the judges do not have a time constraint like we did. So we yeah. had, we, you know, we had so much time that we could spend on our appeal. And then the state, the, or I'm sorry, the attorney general's office had so much time. Um, they could sit on it for a month. They could sit on it for eight months. You know, I don't know when they're going to issue their opinion. Um, I know it'll be faster than because he's in custody, their decision will become, will come before cases where the defendant is out on bond, but I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. the only date that I know right now is, uh, he's up for parole in 2043. That's the only definite date that I have. And it's not a matter, I want to make this clear. It's not a matter of if Ben Darby will get out of prison. It's a matter of when, because the relevant case law that exonerates him was not instructed or applied. 
And that's where we've got an issue. So um, we're going to be wrapping in a little bit, but I did want to touch on this because you brought it up. Mm-hmm. You kind of kind of touched it with a feather and we moved on about it being a an election year. Now, teach myself and the audience, how long is the district attorney's term? Do you know? If not, I can look it up. And if you don't, then what what are you facing as far as election year? Are you, you know, have you talked to whoever else is running if they're, you know, where they sit, stand on this whole thing? Mm-hmm. So uh, for, it's an election year for the attorney general and for the district attorney. Um, no one, to my knowledge, is running against the district attorney in Madison County. So I think they have until May to announce that. March or May, well, it's past March. So um to my knowledge, no one's running against uh, Robert Sart. For the attorney general's spot, um, they have until the general election or the, the there's an election in May. Um, and he does have two people running against him. Um, he was elected as a Republican. There is another Republican running against him. And then there is a Democrat running against him. Um, I have not reached out to anyone. Um I was advised not to reach out to the attorney general due to him being the main prosecutor and legality that if I were to reach out to them, that could be used against me and, mm-hmm. and all that. Um, so we'll see, you know, come May, if he remains the Republican name on the ticket and then, um, you know, November is the, is the election. So. Right. And, and he you does, know, while, I know while that Sorry. No, I was just going to say, and while we know, you know, it could make a difference, there's a big chance that it may not, you know what I mean? Like it, it may have absolutely nothing yeah, to he, do. Uh, Attorney General Marshall does support law enforcement. Um, he runs on that ticket and I've been to um, a rally that he held to back the blue. And um, he wants people to understand that police are important and there is a war on cops right now. So, um, I'm hopeful in that, but it is an election year. And unfortunately he is a politician. So, mm-hmm. um, right. Is he saying it cause he believes it or is he saying it to get those votes? That's mm-hmm. something always to think about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I said, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when, um, I know like he's going to come home. I just don't mm-hmm. know when it's going to be. And he doesn't know when it's going to be. But we are very uh, grounded in our faith. Um, You know, for him to be in isolation for 49 days and to not go crazy, you know, Ben Darby is a very strong minded individual. Sure. um, And he is deeply rooted um, in his relationship with the Lord, um, as am I. And, you know, the faith and hope that comes through God is definitely something that keeps me going. You know, um, we have, we have seen things happen over the last four years um, that are what I would call a God thing. You know, Um, I don't believe in coincidences, but obviously God orchestrated something orchestrated that particular thing to happen, you know? And then I've, people are like, well, if, if you believe in God so much, you know, why did he put Ben in prison? I don't know. I don't know why we're going through this. Um, but unfortunately this is the cards that we're dealt and we're going through it. And 
we are expecting great things to come of it um, and see how we can help other law enforcement. And one other thing, uh, this is not just a personal issue because he's my husband. Uh, professionally, like you stated and we've stated already, I'm a cop too. So I could go to shift tomorrow and I could go to prison for it. So right. people need to understand this is so much bigger than Ben Darby. This is for every law enforcement in Alabama and every law enforcement officer in the nation. If you go to do your job, you could go to prison for it. Right. It Even sets though- a very dangerous precedent for the profession. Yes. Yeah. And it's one that, you know, we can't operate with having that over our head. That's why <clears throat> last year when all everyone was calling for the end of qualified immunity and I said, no, like, yeah. and, and I have, I have people that were in favor of that who are not cops, but they, you know, they have their own opinions and I go, you, you, then they go, well, if a cop doesn't do anything wrong, they have no need for qualified immunity. I said, absolutely not. I said, you could do your job and you, and this is a perfect case. Perfect example. Perfect example where you can do your job and by not having qualified immunity, he was, your husband was found to be not at fault to not have done anything wrong by his entire chain of command, by his entire city council, by the mayor, but without qualified immunity, he's still sitting in prison for it. Right. And that's what we can't operate this way. And I I'm, I'm speaking to, I know I've got listeners in Connecticut who they do not have qualified immunity anymore and it was voted out. And this is a, dangerous, dangerous, slippery slope we are on. And this is a perfect example of that. And like you said, this is not a personal thing. Obviously it's personal for you because it's your husband. Right. Of course. Right. But, and, and the reason why it's so important to cover it is because it is a universal thing. You know, it, it could have very well. Exactly. It could, it could, affect you or it could affect any law enforcement officer in the country right now. Right. Um, so what we need to do is make sure that he, the appeal sticks and the, the reason you are on this show, the reason we were brought together was to let law enforcement officers know out there that this is going on. It is just unacceptable and whatever we can do to assist you in this fight say the word and we will do so. Obviously this is, this is step one of, of a thousand steps and you've already taken a thousand up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, how can people support you in your fight? So um, no one, like this is the first of everyone really hearing what happened because of the gag order and then the closed trial. So um, I'm thankful to uh, blue justice project, like I already mentioned, and then um, Nick Wilson with resiliency project, um, I followed the officer Degas case from here in California and I saw that he supported them and I reached out to Nick and within six hours we were on the phone talking and to have that immediate relief come through, um, it's just so thankful, you know, um, yes, this is, a, this is a financial burden, um, on me trying to help support just not myself personally, but I'm trying to support my husband's appeal fund. So uh, we do have a bank account set up, um, Venmo. Um, the Venmo is at staying with Darby. Um, and, you know, any and all 
donations to help me in the plight that we find ourselves in. Uh, you know, anything, anything that we have received uh, has gone straight to his defense fund. Um, like I said, because we're we're in a six figure digit there or six digit figure. So um, it's not cheap and you can't do it on a cop salary. So um, we are we do have our own website. We'll have donation links on that. That website is standwithdarby.com. And then you can find us on uh, Facebook and Instagram at Stand With Darby. Excellent. Excellent. And um, all my listeners, all the information, the links are going to be in the description of this episode, both on Instagram and on your streaming platform. So just follow them, support if you can. And if you can't, just share it to someone who can, does. Um, that being said, uh, Keelan, anything you need from me and from, I would say, my team, but it's literally me, my girlfriend, and our dog sitting over there in the corner. But <laughs> whatever you need our team to do, we can definitely do for you. Um, obviously, you know, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. It's going to be even more pleasurable to get him exonerated of all this nonsense and then speak to him in the near future. Absolutely. Um, but um, in the meantime, whatever you need, just just reach out and we will continue to support you and um, we'll help you the best way we can. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me again on your show and uh, for giving us the opportunity to get the real story of the miscarriage of justice that was committed against Ben Darby. Sure. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, I had. Unfortunately, a lot of times we see these use of force videos and that's it. You know, we see the video come across. It looks a certain type of way and that's it. And a lot of people don't follow up on it because they just don't care to, of course. Um, but there's so much more that goes into that 30 second clip of video. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously the case. There was obviously from the work side, but the personal side of it is much more uh, deeper than that. And um, obviously this legal process has uh, a ripple effect throughout our entire profession, perhaps throughout our entire society, because why would there be police officers if this is the uh, possibility? You know what I mean? So right. it, this is, this case is tiny, but it is definitely the microcosm of our entire society. Really. If, if this goes, if this, if this stands, what, what else will? So right. um, that being said, you know, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, everyone again, check the description for the links to uh, help them out. Keelan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. No problem. Everyone listening, stay tuned and I will be right back. Please don't cry one tear for me. I'm not afraid of what I have to say. This is my one and only voice, so listen close, it's only for today. I just saw Haley's comet shoe said why are you always running in place, even the man in the moon disappeared, It's offering involuntary manslaughter two years. Be home in six months. Wow, Kathy, you're the greatest lawyer in the world. Ooh, how can we ever thank you? Fellas, you hear what I just said? You're going home in six months. I'm afraid we can't do that, sir. Do what? Make a deal, sir. What are you talking about? 
We did nothing wrong, sir. We did our job, and if that has consequences, then I'll accept them. But I won't say that I'm guilty, sir. Do it, Harold. Six months. It's nothing. It's a hockey season. Permission to speak. Jesus. What do we do then, sir? When? After six months, we'll be dishonorably discharged, right, sir? Probably. Well, what do we do then, sir? We joined the Marines because we wanted to live our lives by a certain code. And we found it in the core. Now you're asking us to sign a piece of paper that says we have no honor. You're asking us to say we're not Marines. If a court decides that what we did was wrong, then I'll accept whatever punishment they give. But I believe I was right, sir. I believe I did my job, and I will not dishonor myself, my unit, or the Corps, so that I can go home in six months! Sir! I had to include that clip from one of my favorite movies of all time, A Few Good Men. If you've never seen it before, shame on you. Go go watch it the moment this episode is over. Just go find it. I don't know where it's streaming. Go find it and put it on and watch it. It's amazing. But that, it was on at work, and that's how I thought about it. And, uh, you know, that scene is pretty spot on when we think about the Ben Darby case. Uh, you know, he was offered that deal, that bogus deal, uh, five years of probation, no custody time. And he was like, no, you can stick it in your ass. Like, no, <laughs> that's that's a bullshit deal. I didn't do, I didn't commit manslaughter, period. So it's like, part of me feels like Tom Cruise in that movie. Part of me feels like, that, like the private, you know, like, but at the end of the day, Ben Darby's such a good man of, of, of character. Obviously he said, no, take the deal and shove it. That's it. I, I didn't, I didn't commit manslaughter. I didn't commit murder. And he didn't. Um, like I said, at this point, I really hope you guys went and checked out the video, listened to the interview, thought about what I said. Again, I'm not telling you what to think. I am providing you with information, information that, the, the people on the jury, as you now know, did not, they were not privy to that information. I don't understand how that's even possible. But the, the most important thing that I can ask you guys to do at this point in the game is to just support them. Uh, go to Stand With Darby on Instagram. Go to The Resiliency Project on Instagram. Go to my page on Instagram and find the links to help them out. Even if all you can do is share their story. Share the uh, video trailer that Nick and I made. Uh, share the second one that I made by myself. Just share it. Get the word out there so people know that this this is existing. And uh, if you're able to financially help them, like like uh, Keelan said, the the debt is just continuing to rise, and it's uh, it's a terrible thing. And I'd really hate for this this man to be in prison for something that he didn't have to do on financial technicalities. That would be terrible. And it goes to say, you know, how crazy the the justice system really is. You know, if, if having an appeal costs that much money and yeah, Keelan's getting all these donations and everything. But you think about it, he's not the first person that's been wrongly convicted. We know that. We know that there's proof throughout the way. Um, but that's that's the interview today, guys. That's the episode today. I really hope you guys got something out of it. Um, and again, reach out to Keelan, try to help the best way you can, even if sharing the story is all you can do. We're going to be back next week, guys, with a cop from Canada. Her name is Liv. She draws cartoons and she goes by the Instagram name Thin, Thin Blue Scribble. Sorry, I just had some, uh, some, uh, oral surgery this week. So my, my, uh, my words are a little jumbled and I apologize for that, but 
got to do what you got to do. Got to get this episode out. And I am here to serve you. Once again, as always, rate, review, subscribe, and share the episode. Share the show. Check out the merch store 10-8-memes.ecwid.com. Our sponsors today, uh, Street Street Cop Training, TOC Public Relations, Nick Wall Nutrition, as always, Canuck Canada, Resiliency Project. We have a lot of supporters, a lot of friends, lots of sponsors. Check us out at 10.8 underscore memes on Instagram, 10.8 memes on Facebook. I appeared on two different podcasts this week, the Motor Cop Chronicles podcast and the Staff Assistant podcast as well. Go check them both out. A lot of fun being on those two episodes, the Motor Cop Chronicles. They're going to do a part two on my show probably in about a month or so, so check that out. That's all I got for you guys. The song, I only put one song on the episode today. Uh, it's, a, it's a poignant song, and that's why I used it. It's Second Chance by Shinedown, one of my favorite bands. Uh, the, the words kind of hit me a different way as well. So all that being said, that's really all I got, guys. Take care of each other. We'll see you next week. Take care of each other. Stay safe. 10-8 out. I just saw him